You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Mark Zaid, again, who is a Washington, D.C.-based attorney who specializes in innovatively handling simple and complex administrative and litigation matters relating to national security, intelligence, international law, foreign sovereign and diplomatic immunity, defamation, and the Freedom of Information and Privacy Acts. He's also the executive director and founder of the James Madison Project, a Washington, D.C.-based organization with the primary purpose of educating the public on issues related to intelligence gathering and operations, security policies, national security, and government wrongdoing. He's also the founding partner of Whistleblower Aid. Whistleblower Aid is a startup nonprofit law firm with an initial focus on clients associated with the federal government of the United States. By making it easier for whistleblowers to expose wrongdoing without breaking the law or incurring criminal liability, they hope to encourage more patriots to come forward. Welcome back, Mark. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Thank you, Vince. It is always a pleasure to be with the Spy Museum. And yes, you have the record now until Stout comes back. You know, Fantastic. All I'm right. coming for you, Stout. <laughs> Staying in the lead. So it's hard to really kind of wrap our heads around the fact that it was about a week and a half ago when we're the number one story in America was the revocation of John Brennan's security clearance. I mean, the last week, which is a good year in most cases when it came to news and news dealing with legal issues and courts and everything else, kind of wiped our brains of that a bit. It seems like it's a year ago that we were arguing about the John Brennan case. But we really kind of just forgot about it because so much more interesting things popped up last week. But I want to kind of go back and tackle that because a big part of your legal work has been dealing with security clearances and certainly maybe not people at the level of a former director of the CIA, but people who have been uh, victimized, I'm sure from your point of view, uh, by having their security clearances revoked. And so you have a lot of experience this. So let's talk a little bit about the Brennan case, because it may or may not end with him. I mean, certainly the president has argued that there may be more people like 
Michael Hayden, Jim Clapper, uh, James Comey, um, even people that we haven't thought about in a long time, like former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates um, and Susan Rice from the Obama administration going way back. And if he does this, this will bring back this argument yet again. And I think it's not going anywhere because there might be some legal issues involved with this. Um, but let's start by laying out what the, the kind of basics are behind this. Like, how hard is it to strip a security clearance in a nuts and bolts kind of way? Because the last I read, there's been no written beyond the tweet. There's been no written information that's even gone to CIA, which would be the organization that would formally strip the security clearance to do so. Right now, it's all a tweet. Sure. So I've been doing security clearances now for 20 plus years and handling cases, of course, with the intel community my entire professional career going back 25 years. And and I teach security clearances to lawyers on how to handle these cases, to facility security officers and defense contractors about how to handle their jobs, and to federal employees just in general. And nobody ever thought how sexy security clearances apparently <laughs> would become that every you know major newspaper, television program, blog post, whatever, would, was asking questions about clearances. And it's unfortunately because it became politicized, something that clearances, frankly, are not supposed to be at any given time. And you're right, as you said, certainly about some of the cases that I've handled, the hundreds that I've handled, there are quite a number of cases where I will say I believe the client was politically attacked or retaliated against, but I use politically with a small p. It's not a Democrat-Republican partisanship issue. It's usually internal politics that has something to do with that individual's job, relationship with someone else, superiors, things like that. But even in a lot of those cases, and we won't make a name drop unless you want to, there's usually criminal charges being filed against somebody or there's a clear case of some kind of financial problems or, 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 or you know, I, a lot of times they're stripped in response to some kind of other legal matter or things that would have popped up in the first place to prevent them from getting clearance, not just speaking out against the government. Now, so there are 13 adjudicative guidelines that exist to the government that indicate a basis for which a clearance can be denied or revoked. There's there's very little in the sense of something that is guaranteed, well, not necessarily guaranteed. I can give you fact patterns where it would be guaranteed the person would lose their clearance, but mandated. I mean, there are the obvious things. You know, if someone comes to me and said, I did cocaine yesterday, you know, right before I went to work at the CIA, that person's going to lose their clearance no matter what I do, you know, 99.999% of the time. But most cases are ones that the public would never hear of. And if I explained the fact pattern to someone, they would go, okay, that makes perfect sense. Cases involving alcohol, they got DUIs, they're coming to work drunk. I mean, they've got a problem. Uh, now, of course, you don't have to be an alcoholic to, to get a DUI. You might just have a bad day or night, whatever it might be. Drug-related issues, of course. Mental health issues, which, of course, federal employees and contractors are not immune from just because you hold a security clearance. Um, security problems. You know, you, you, you failed to turn the safe dial and lock it. You forgot to properly store your combination to the SCIF, Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility, the room that's secure, like in the White House Situation Room. 
Uh, you forgot, to, you, you left a classified document on your desk. You brought one home. You brought your cell phone, talking about Amorosa. You brought your cell phone into the secure facility. Happens all the time. I got a prospective client. That was one of the primary reasons, <laughs> literally yesterday, that they contacted me. Stuff like that happens all the time. It's very routine. Then you do get cases where you believe retaliation is or, is occurring. There's still always, as you said, a, a substantive basis. Right. And, and that's what makes these type of cases so difficult, for example, for whistleblower protection. Because actually there, there's legislation or, or regulations that have been adopted from an executive order that talk about protecting whistleblowers and that the agencies are not allowed to retaliate against a whistleblower by use of a clearance weapon. The problem is... The language talks about like you can't solely use it. And there's almost always a substantive basis or excuse that an agency can come up with. And even if we go down the list of the folks who you named who are all politically in opposition to Donald Trump, not necessarily politically Republican against Democrat or Democrat against Republican, because about half of those people, I think, are Republican and about half are Democrat or or we don't know what they might be, right. and or at least they were. Some of them, I think, probably switched parties, as I recall them announcing, as a result of Donald Trump. But we have never had a situation, and there is no adjudicative guideline that addresses political speech as being the substantive basis for a clearance revocation or denial, other than under guideline A, which is allegiance to the United States, which is if you advocate the violent overthrow of the U.S. government, militia groups, terrorist groups, right. things like that. You know, that is not, of course, what we're dealing with with any of these individuals. It's hard not to see this. You talked about it never been politicized this way. I mean, as a historian, I can think back to one time where security clearance was politicized. The to Oppenheimer this Yeah, it's impossible. It's mean, about the only one right. anyone's been able to come up with. That one is, I mean, clear. I mean, that that is... Immediately when this story broke that, you know, Trump was threatening to strip his clearance over over this, it immediately thought of Oppenheimer, right? Because Oppenheimer's clearance was stripped because of opposition to the hydrogen bomb. And they brought up all this crap from the 30s where his ex-girlfriend was a communist and his brother was, and used it against him as a bludgeon. And it was purely political. And, of course, this is at the height of McCarthyism. So, you know, this is one of the bellwethers of the McCarthy period. It's not the worst thing, but it's one of them. But it's now been 64 years or 60 whatever years since that took place. And even in the Nixon era and even in the Clinton era where talk about a bifurcated political system where everyone is going after everybody else, you didn't see this kind of using security clearance as a political weapon. No, and we should highlight this because one, there is many – there are many – analogies one could make between the McCarthy era and this administration. And ironically, perhaps, the existence today of the due process system, particularly for contractors, but now it's mostly extended to federal employees, was created as a result of cases like Oppenheimer. It wasn't directly Oppenheimer. There was another case called Green versus McElroy, uh, 
or maybe getting maybe like LV, something like that. I'm blanking on it at the moment from 1959, 58 or 59 Supreme Court case, which grew out of the McCarthy era. An individual here in the D.C. area, Navy civilian, as I recall, was accused of associating with communists, being seen to go to communist meetings, something like that. And he lost his security clearance, but he wasn't told who made the allegations, what were the allegations. It was just very generic. And the Supreme Court said that's absolutely inappropriate, not going to do it. And there needs to be a due process system. The Eisenhower administration, rather than waiting for Congress to act because it was concerned about what Congress would do, issued an executive order granting essentially the, the grandfather or father of the current system. Now, as far as I know, and uh, you may know differently and say so if you do, but I haven't heard anybody say anything. Even with Oppenheimer, I'm not aware of any involvement of President Eisenhower or the White House. No, I mean, what's interesting about Oppenheimer is that even in the height of McCarthyism, there was still a process in place, right? There were there were very public hearings where General Groves and Teller and a bunch of others talked about Oppenheimer, and he was able to be defended. And he received, by, yeah. received due process. So this is the first time in the history of the system that a president of the United States has intervened. Now, the president, from a constitutional authority standpoint, absolutely has the power to decide who receives, who does not receive uh, access to classified information. But that authority is grant is delegated. It's always delegated to the agencies. Well, but is it limitless? I mean, it, it, there's a the Department of Navy versus Egan. I you know hunted down and looked up that said there were limitations to this. I mean, and you could eat common sense. You don't need to look up Supreme Court cases. If the president tomorrow said that no. No Jews could get security clearance right. or no women could have security clearance or no Democrats or no Democrats or no one who voted against. Right. Me. That seems like that would be constitutionally problematic, even though theoretically the president has limitless authority to grant security clearances. It would seem to be. I would hope it would be. I don't know. You know, it, it, and we could get, you know, scholars uh, on both sides. We could get practitioners like myself on both sides. And it's, it's an academic discussion because we've never been faced with anything like that before. I, I know what I would hope the court would do. I know what I would argue were I the lawyer in support or against the administration doing it, but we've never had it done. So we have this situation where the president has intervened personally, has created a conundrum with respect to the due process system. And as you indicated, there's no indication, at least that we know of publicly, or that Brennan has acknowledged that he's aware of, that the CIA or the DNI has, one, been brought into the loop on this process at all, uh, and if so, has taken the steps to issue the proper documentation that would give Brennan due process. Because under the the governing executive order, which nothing Trump has said supersedes that as of yet, the executive order 12968, which President Clinton issued in 1995, it went into effect, I believe, in 96, that still governs how clearances are revoked and denied, at least by way of the floor. It, it sets what the base minimum is, and other and agencies then can work from that to go you know, up up the stairs, so to speak. Can you argue due process with Brennan? Because it, it, the fundamental application of due process is life, liberty, or property. 
if you're saying that Brennan is not having anything even remotely valuable taken away from him, the security clearance, then he doesn't seem to have an argument. Now, if you argue that by taking away security clearance, you're taking away his ability to make money or to do his job or to do anything, then you're really feeding into the argument that the Trump administration is making is that he is benefiting financially from security clearance. I'm wondering about the juxtaposition with someone like Bruce Orr, who is a current employee in the United States government. If you strip his security clearance for political reasons, you you basically have fired the guy because he can't do his job anymore. That seems a more clear-cut due process case than the Brennan one because Brennan, Clapper, Hayden, everyone is saying, I don't get anything from having a security clearance. Well, if you don't get anything, then why is your due process being violated if they take it away from you? It's just a thing. So the courts have been very clear that there is no property interest in the Constitution with respect to a security clearance. It is a privilege not a right, so there's then no property interest. There is also what's called a liberty interest. Both of these are within the Fifth Amendment. And that's where the constitutional arguments come into play with respect to due process, etc. That's where the problems arise right now because of this Egan case. And let me just say something quickly about that so the listeners understand why there is a problem with this type of situation. So Egan was decided in 1988. It was a Navy case, which is why it's Department of Navy versus Egan. And it was a case before what's called the Merit System Protection Board, the MSPB as we call it, which is an entity that hears civil servant employee claims. Uh, Not everybody in the federal government has the ability to go before this entity. Uh, You have to fall within certain frameworks and some agencies have exempted themselves from it. So like the, most of the intel agency agencies, except in very narrow circumstances, you'll never have anybody who goes before the MSPB. This, the question before the Supreme Court was a very narrow one, and it was whether or not Congress, in creating the MSPB, because it was created by statute in, I think, 1978, if I remember, for the, with the Civil Service Reform Act, whether they, as, a, as an entity, had granted the MSPB the authority to adjudicate or review security clearance decisions. It was a very narrow statutory interpretation or statutory construction question. And the Supreme Court said, no, Congress did not give that authority, so the MSPB does not have the right to review an executive branch, even though MSPB is part of the executive branch, but to review an executive branch decision on a clearance. But then it went further in what we call dicta, which is information or language of the opinion that, frankly, is not relevant to the opinion. If you stripped it out, it wouldn't have touched the decision, the substantive decision. But they add it in there, and it sometimes takes on a life of its own, which is what our problem is 30 years later. And in this dicta, the justices said that they are not experts in national security— And they do not, therefore, have the expertise to be able to adjudicate, render, oversee, conduct oversight, whatever word you want to use, an executive branch security clearance decision. And since that time, no court has been willing to substantively address a security clearance decision. It is also clear that federal courts will hear procedural challenges. So jump quickly back to Brennan. The fact that Brennan has not yet received 
due process, even procedurally. He hasn't received written notification of what the specific details are, told he could hire a lawyer at his own cost, told that he could file a written submission, told that he could have a personal appearance before an adjudicative body or, or person as part of his appeal process. That, I believe, can be legally enforced and required. And we'll swing back around to this because it goes back to, again, the presidential authority. So substantively, no courts have been willing. There have been some judges, and there was a case decided by the D.C. Circuit literally a couple of weeks ago here in August that are called the Palmieri case, where one of the three judges, uh, in a concurring opinion, raised a level of uncomfortableness that they should be able to adjudicate non-frivolous constitutional claims, which would get to what you were talking about if there was some blanket stripping of uh, an entire race, gender, political opposition, something like that, uh, that they should be able to hear something like of that type of case. There have been these constitutional claims made, particularly post 9-11, by Muslim Americans who believe that their clearances were stripped solely because it was retaliation that they were Muslims. And none of those cases have succeeded on an individual level. But the courts have been dealing with things that are very intelligence, national security related, certainly since 9-11. You look at the Carpenter case, which was just came down this summer about NSA capabilities, about electronic eavesdropping and things. Those are way above the technical understanding of most courts, and the Supreme Egan Court took it on. is one of the most frustrating decisions that I have seen in my national security work because it makes no sense. The DOD regulations and DOD, Department of Defense, handles the vast majority of security clearance cases just by sheer number. Correct. Right. The regulations make it clear, actually, in the language that a security clearance decision, which is predictive in nature, meaning we're trying to figure out how, based on what we know of this person today or yesterday, how they will act going forward into the future. That's all you can do, right? You got three DUIs in the last five years. Does that mean you're going to get another one going forward? And historically speaking, Alcoholism has played a big role in our espionage cases, not really the way it is in the more recent two, three decades, but from the 30s to the 90s with the Soviet Union, absolutely right. so. Alcoholism was often a big factor for a lot of the spies against us, our own people. I mean, the Cambridge Five were shit-faced nonstop. I mean, that was... Uh, yeah. you know, I mean, you... And, and in the predictive nature, the studies that come out of the U.S. government, you know, that's basically what they're doing each time. Okay, here's a spy we caught. Let's look at the person. Right. What's their age? What's their gender? What's their, their race and nationality? What hobbies do they have? Do they wear a sock, two socks on the left foot? Oh, anyone who does then must be a spy. I mean, literally stuff like that, and it doesn't always work. But the thing about in DOD, the regulations say that a, pr a predictive determination in a clearance case is a common sense decision. Common sense. Uses the words common sense. So basically, the Supreme Court in 1988 said that federal district judges, federal circuit court judges, and fellow Supreme Court justices don't have the common sense <laughs> to be able to adjudicate a clearance decision, yet they opine on the most complicated med-mal cases, security exchange issues, bankruptcy, you know, stuff that makes my head spin. I can't even figure out what they're talking about. And these judges who might have no experience in that field 
are able to adjudicate right. because they have to because that's their job. So that's a very frustrating thing about with respect to uh, Egan. Now, Brennan, jumping back, until Trump says otherwise, and presumably he could, Brennan's entitled to substantive due process. Now, the question is, can he get, can he realistically receive any because it was the president of the United States, the top of the food chain saying your clearance is gone. And actually, I think, I think he can if the CIA wants to have uh, some backbone and some chutzpah. Uh, I don't know if they would, uh, not necessarily known for it, but um, I, I'd like to think that because security professionals generally are just that, professionals, that they would apply the proper guidelines. And even if, because there are some, and they were laid out in Trump's prepared statement read by the press secretary, there were uh, two or three substantive reasons other than you're my political enemy opponent to revoke Brennan's security clearance. And one can argue about the significance. One can argue about the accuracy or veracity of it. But there were. He lied to Congress about whether the CIA had spied on Senate staff during the torture investigation was an accusation uh, that uh, I think he, that he, he, he essentially was mentally ill was part of what Trump was saying with his uh, erratic behavior in tweets and things like that. That's a mm -hmm. guideline. That's guideline I, psychological conditions. Pot, meat, kettle. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, th there is a lot of hypocrisy on this. So what? why could the CIA or how could the CIA reverse this decision? Because security clearance adjudications are all about mitigation. Okay, Trump has assessed or asserted that Brennan has a mental health issue. Fine. I would send John Brennan to a psychiatrist. I would have him evaluated. The psychiatrist would present a report back to me and say, nope, there's nothing wrong. He just is politically opposed to the president of the United States. I turn that into the CIA. Uh, the issue about spying on Senate staff, well, the official position of the CIA is they didn't spy on Senate staff. So that would seem to be a pretty easy thing to mitigate. Now, the Senate may have a very different view about that as as well as other people, but the CIA, who would be adjudicating Brennan's clearance, uh, doesn't believe they spied on the Senate staff, so that's pretty easy to mitigate. So once the mitigating evidence is presented, the CIA could say, we've looked at all the concerns expressed by the president, and we believe John Brennan has mitigated it, and we therefore reinstate his clearance. That doesn't give him access necessarily to anything because he hasn't had access to classified information. None of them have uh, other than Bruce Orr because he works for the Justice Department. Right. They It would reinstate uh, eligibility to uh, obtain access. Now, the unknown, of course, is if the CIA did that, the President of the United States could then again step in and say, you know, no, sorry, I'm, I'm revoking it again. And, you know, the buck stops here. And again, we haven't had that type of situation ever before, so we don't entirely know how it would work out. But national security cases are always deferred to the executive branch. So, well, you know, these are all, it's in his favor. These are dictated by executive order. Could Congress step in and pass a bill outlining kind of processes for revocation? Potentially. And it is something that we were working actually with members of Congress on to try and do that, especially or at least to overturn or clarify Egan to statutorily grant, just like was the issue in Egan. 
hey, grant the MSPB statutory authority to adjudicate clearances or mandate a due process system. The, the Defense Department has an office called the Defense Office of Hearings and Appeals, DOHA, for the acronym. They hear most of the clearance cases. It is literally a mini trial. We have an opening. We have a closing. We have live witnesses, telephonic witnesses, documents introduced for evidence. We direct testimony. We have cross-examination. Uh, the, the only other agency that does that is the Energy Department. doesn't have anywhere near as the number of cases. And, and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which is part of the Energy Department anyway, they're the only other ones who do that. The other agencies do it very well, differently. Well, that's when you're talking Q-clearance levels Correct. of craziness. Yeah. And I would, I'd love to see that type of body, administrative body, which is executive branch. I mean, the judges are GS-15s. It's the highest grade level short of executive, uh, senior executive service, SES or SIS, depending on what agency that you're at. And these are GS-15s who, quite frankly, other than their job position, are not security professionals often. I mean, sometimes they came out of the Labor Department as administrative judges, Social Security judges. Um, sometimes they were lawyers. Oftentimes they were lawyers in that agency in Doha who moved their way up. But that's leaving it in the executive branch. Why not create a FISA-type court on the judicial side that actually could be a clearinghouse for these kind of cases? Sure. Because it, entirely you, possible. I, I don't know if Congress is politically well, yeah. obviously willing to do that. That does put oversight and checks over what the executive is doing because all these agencies that have security clearance all under the executive, right? Whether it's DOD or intelligence agencies, they're all executive branch. It's kind of they're policing themselves if they're doing it that way. Maybe having, I don't know. <laughs> I'd love to see, I, I tell you, even that would be a significant reform, obviously. And, and there's a lot involved with that. And there are constitutional issues. There are political issues. There, there are just a lot of issues with that. I would love to even see on a smaller effect where somehow someone independent within the executive branch would be able to oversee appeals of particular decisions, meaning a lot of times when I was talking earlier about the small p political retribution against people, that occurs within the agency, with not, not the agency, CIA, but agencies, whatever agency is involved. It is usually personal. Someone has something against that person for whatever reason. May, it, it may be that they actually know the person and they're retaliating, or it may be that they think that that person embarrassed their agency and are taking retribution for that. You don't see that type of attitude when you are able to remove it to a different agency. So, for example, I'll have a case at the NSA or someone will come to me from NSA who, and they lost their clearance there. And then it is another agency that is assessing a new clearance determination. But the old clearance issues are still viable to be adjudicated. Right. And it is often the case that I'll get the Defense Department to completely arrive at a different decision, favorable, where NSA, CIA, or DIA had revoked or denied the person a clearance, based on the same exact facts. Why? Because I'm able to present it to a neutral observer, and, and I might, and, and maybe often do, have additional mitigating evidence. So they're very fact-specific, so it's hard to do a broad brush. But those people aren't connected. They don't have anything to lose or gain by how the decision is, and they're not subservient to some sort of political machinations, again, with a small p, 
internal to right. the agency. So that would even be an improvement to be able to do. You know, going back to where we started on some of the as- aspects of this particular topic, you know, Brennan's not losing anything. You know, Brennan probably actually made more money off of this whole episode right. than he was before. He didn't have access to clearance, to uh, classified information, he wasn't using it, he wasn't being brought in to go meet with Pompeo when he was at CIA or the current director now. But that's beneficial to the agency, not to Brennan. I mean, the whole point of keeping people on with security clearance is that you can bring in institutional knowledge, right? You can. Yeah, bring they weren't Brennan making back. money. I don't. Yeah. I, I'm not aware that any former cabinet officer would be paid for their time to go meet. I mean, this with is really the shooting the agency in their foot in many cases. Is if they want to bring back somebody with 30 years of counterterrorism experience to say, you know. Here's how we did it in the past or, you know, somebody who was an expert on some dude that they kind of popped up again. Now they can't if there's clearances. Absolutely. And that's that's the problem. And that's why there is a reason why folks like Brennan and others would retain their clearance, as well as that they may be serving, as they often do, on boards of major defense contractors. And they may be working on some things where they actually have a need to know. And that's part of the clearance nomenclature where you you need to have a need to know. In fact, what what Trump should have done, frankly, although I guess it wouldn't have been as much fun for him, uh, is simply administratively terminate Brennan's need to know and say, I have determined during the course of my administration that John Brennan has absolutely no need to know any classified information because I don't find his input valuable. That doesn't do anything other than just turn the key and lock the door on Brennan. The government does that to me all the time. I have eligibility oftentimes up to TSSCI, and I routinely do not get it because the agencies say, nope, you have no need to know, even though you're representing the client who's being uh, penalized for whatever, losing their clearance, fired, investigated. Uh, but we've decided you have no need to know because that is something that has to benefit us, the government. Uh, but I didn't lose my clearance. Right. I, I still have my eligibility. So for Brennan and the others, other than or. As you mentioned, you know, most of them have all said, well, we haven't had access. You know, Comey had his access read off when he was fired. Same thing with Yates. Uh, same thing with McCabe and Strzok. That's just the way the process works for anyone who leaves government service. Well, well they were fired. I mean, they were they were booted out for a cause. Correct. They didn't retire after a long career as, you know, DNI or DCIA or anything like right. that. And, yeah. and so there would be. Again, as we get to that, there are cognizable, whether one agrees with them or not, reasons to say these people should not have their security clearances for some of them. You know, I've never figured out Susan Rice other than that, you know, obviously she's a political opponent. I I guess you can make a Benghazi argument where that she lied on television. Um, But I worked that case and I don't think she did. But that's a totally different issue um, to discuss. But so Bruce Orr, though, if if they went after Bruce Orr's clearance, he is the only current government employee. And as you said, uh, the nature of his position would mean if you stripped him of his clearance, he would lose his job because he cannot perform it. And that seems like a clear cut First Amendment because of association. I mean, he's basically being targeted because his wife worked for Fusion GPS, which is the firm behind the Steele dossier. Yeah. And again, no adjudicative guideline other than the generic guideline E is is what we call the kitchen sink guideline. It's just personal conduct. You know, I, I still I struggle to figure out really, frankly, what Bruce Orr has ever done. 
uh, at least in all I know is what's publicly reported. And other than what you said, his relationship to his wife. Now, so he, I think it was reported he met with Steele uh, on occasion. And the question would be, did he report the contact? Because Steele, as a British national, uh, would be a required reportable contact. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what the Justice Department guidelines are as far as when they have to report them, uh, at what point in time after the contact, things like that. but again, you know, you, you don't, frankly, you don't see very many cases within the clearance system where the foreign national contact is a British national in the sense of taking adverse action. You know, it, it's very rare that there's any expressed concern by the U.S. government involving uh, Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Right. The five, uh, the five eyes. eyes. Yeah. Uh, and I'm missing who's who. Ireland? Ireland, I guess. Oh, no, Is that it, the fifth it, eye? Who's the fifth eye? It's the United States. Oh, we're the fifth eye. Okay, yeah. well, I guess that makes sense. I'm always thinking there was another five. Yes. So the four eyes, yes. the, the four eyes, and I'm going to start to say, uh, I would think Ireland should be part of that, the south, south of Ireland, but I'll leave that for the politicians to figure out. Uh, now, I did have a case recently where, and this was, uh, people even on the inside kind of smirked at this, where, where NATO was perceived as a threat. To the United States, and now in the Trump administration, I guess NATO is a threat. Well, to the United Canada States. today, if you follow the news and Canada, today, apparently. but uh, I have had some Canadian cases over the years, and and let me just say those cases go away really, really fast when I bring them to the attention of senior officials who have decision-making authority. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Let's talk Brennan one last time, and then we'll move on to something else. Is there a First Amendment argument to be made here? And speech, certainly, but also association. I mean, basically, he's not just being punished for what he said, but he's being punished for becoming part of this never-Trump movement now. Now even more so when you have a 100 and whatever former intelligence professionals all signing this letter, coming together to say, you know, we oppose this. I mean, there seems to be a clear-cut case of political association being a reason for the security clearance being lost. Is there, I mean, really, is there a legal case to be made here? I mean, whether it's the Fifth Amendment, the First Amendment, even going to equal protection, kind of like picking on him because of something he said or what he did or who he is, is there something that can get some traction? So there is a legal case. There's certainly arguments to be made. I would most certainly be willing to make them. Well, is there a winnable legal case? At at this stage, given how the courts have addressed Egan, unless a judge or judges were willing to really go out on a limb, I, I don't see this as as a winnable case. Now, what I've said about this, in fact, is that doesn't concern me. Uh, because not every case has to be winnable to to be worthy of being brought, to be able to push the point 
to affect change. Now, we as lawyers, we're not allowed to bring frivolous claims because that would subject us to, in the federal system, are called Rule 11 sanctions for bringing a frivolous claim. The way to affect change, though, is to bring a case where you can bring it up through the system so that the body that has ultimate jurisdiction or authority, in this case, the Supreme Court, because it's Egan as a Supreme Court case grants the, or conveys precedent over every court beneath it, we have to get it up to the Supreme Court to, to decide, do we want to overturn or at least modify Egan? The only way to do that is to bring a case to challenge Egan along the way. So in that sense, there is certainly a viable, cognizable claim. You know, based this Supreme Court, what its makeup is, I think it would be difficult. I mean, there have been a number of cases over the years. Um, let's just say the Supreme Court is not a friendly party to individual claims against the U.S. government that involve national security. Now, when you have the cases where, and I think you mentioned one or two of them in the very beginning, the cases where the Supreme Court has said, no, uh, we're not in agreement with that, it, it hasn't just been an individual. It's been a broad base, some of the Guantanamo cases right. post 9-11 as to whether or not they would have habeas corpus, meaning an ability to appeal their detention uh, in Gitmo, which is obviously not theoretically, you know, it's theoretically part of the United States, but it's on Cuban soil. It's, there's no U.S. court system down there. And the D.C. Circuit here and then the Supreme Court said, yes, they do. But obviously an individual brought the case, but it, it applied to everybody. Right. Uh, so I... I am reluctant to say, uh, not really reluctant, I'm, I'm disappointed to say I don't think there'd be a winnable case, but it's a case that should be brought because the issue is important and there needs to be some sort of change. Would there be a more winnable case if you had a horde of people who all got their clearances stripped, who all could prove that they were all... I think it strengthens yeah. it. So if if Trump did go down the line, this litany of names that were expressed both by him publicly and the White House, then I, I think it does strengthen the case. And and this is what those of us who are on the inside, uh, in the weeds on these, are most concerned about. I'm not, like I said, I'm not concerned about John Brennan. John Brennan's speaking fees probably undoubtedly just went up. Uh, you know, the next administration, even Republican, can come in and reverse Trump's decision. This is a short-term, pretty much non significant impact on his life other than, you know, he's having to deal with it. But there's probably a lot of better good things that came out of it for him than bad. But the precedent, right. the premise that is set, the tone that this is set is literally what we were talking about when we look back to Oppenheimer and the Green case. It is, well, where does it stop? Where do we go back towards McCarthyism? Do we go to all right, anyone who vocally opposes the president. Now, Brennan was at a level that is, you know, very few people command that type of attention because of his background on air, uh, media, things like that. Uh, but there's a lot of us who obviously do have at least some media exposure, um, some more routinely than others, not household names by any shape or form, but are critical of this administration, the last administration, the next administration, whatever it might be. Is it because of that political viewpoint we may not get access to classified information? Might it be, like I said earlier, if you're a Democrat in a Republican administration, you lose access? Or do we check your voting records, which the government has never done, uh, to see 
who you voted for. And if you voted for not the president of the United States who's sitting, you are not hired or you lose your clearance. That's where the concern exists. And, you know, are we there yet? No, of course we're not. But and, and frankly, I make these analogies now. You look back to the beginning days of National Socialism and national and Nazi Germany or Stalinist Soviet Union, it was baby steps. They didn't just go to concentration camps and li- or lining people right. against the wall for execution. They took baby steps. And these were some of the steps that they took. Uh, if, if, you know, Igor heard uh, Sven... I can't think of another Russian name. Sven Swedish, I guess. You could say Svetlana. Heard Svetlana (laughs) say in the hallway at the water cooler that they don't like Stalin, and that got reported up the chain. Svetlana lost her job, and maybe her life, and maybe her family's life, depending on what year it was and what was her her saying. So, you know, it's a real concern, and it's not the current system we have. Uh, and and that's what we have to say. That's where hopefully Congress would get involved, but we'll have to see. I mean, I think back to when Stanley McChrystal was outed in Rolling Stone in his team, which included Mike Flynn, incidentally, said all those things about Joe Biden being a moron and, you know, like very critical. And he got fired from his job. He didn't have a security clearance stripped. No. He wasn't pushed out of the army. He had a lot of these things. Pretty hardcore uh, response at the time, right? We talk about baby steps, right? I mean, there was a lot of criticism of the Obama administration for how hard they came down on Stanley McChrystal because of something that he said that was kind of his free speech. And, and you know, people still criticize the Obama administration for how they reacted towards McChrystal's insubordination, you know, kind of using that. But he never actually said, I won't do something. He just said bad things about the vice president who has, you know, and honestly, he said a lot of bad things about himself. It was a lot about, you know, he foot in his mouth all the time. If that happened today, we'd be like, eh. You talk about incremental steps, right? Our, 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 our capability of being shocked is just being eroded. And, and it's, it's almost gone to the point where the Brennan story is not even that big of a deal anymore. It was only a week and a half ago. And it's like, well, there's bigger fish to fry at this point. Right. And it doesn't. It doesn't impact anyone else at this stage, you know, other than talk. I mean, other than obviously those who are on the left who are incensed and those are on, who are on the right who are cheering. Uh, I mean, it, it's fascinating and scary and sad to watch the reactions, frankly, on both sides because they're not paying attention to the bigger picture, which is what those of us who handle these all the time are more concerned about. Not this action against John Brennan specifically, right? I mean, there are those on the or personal on the right who are furious about this, and then those on the left that are cheering about this. You That's know? true too. Absolutely. But the, the, the most yes. ironic thing was when Ben Wisner, who is the ACLU lawyer, uh, who has no friend of John Brennan, no, not at all. Uh, just it was surreal to see the ACLU come out in support of John Doctor Drone Brennan, who you know, had overseen enhanced interrogation programs and the drone programs and everything else being defended by the ASOU. And at the same time, you had people on both sides, the right and the left. And I, I think that it's it's problematic, you know, I, to argue the right versus the left in this case, because there are civil libertarians on the right that are losing their minds over these kind of things. And there's those on the left that are like, yeah, screw John Brennan. 
um, it, it, it's interesting where the kind of bedfellows are coming together. On yes, and that's what makes this topic so complicated and difficult to talk about outside of the narrow, small community in the sense of compared to the, you know, the entire United mm-hmm. States or the world, since I seem to be arguing with people on Twitter from Australia and Canada and other countries. So I'm like, why do you care? What's going on in our country politically? Uh, don't you have other things to deal with in your own countries? But yes, and it's difficult because a lot of times often they, they frankly, they don't know all the full facts of it and they don't know the system. Uh, but you talk to the people who know the system and then the response is whether right or left, they're concerned about this type of action and they should be. Let me shift focus to something it's going to feel like it's dramatically different, but there really there still is a tie-in to all that we've been talking about, and that's non-disclosure agreements. And, and one thing I, I wonder about is, and it's especially true in the case of whistleblowers and other things, how in the world can non-disclosure agreements be binding when they're covering up a crime? Like, and that's the case. I, I see that all the time now, especially in like the Me Too movement, where. Uh, women can't come forward because they sign an NDA after some kind of rape or sexual harassment where they get sued for their, you know, within an inch of their lives if they come forward. And of course, the White House, the story came out last week or the week before that the White House was requiring all of its employees to sign NDAs. But then you look at, let's say you work for Lockheed, not to single them out, was like the first defense contractor I thought of in my head, where you sign a non-disclosure agreement about their new whatever and then you realize that there's some kind of fraud, waste, or abuse, or they're fleecing the government on something, you can't come out without fear of being annihilated by the army of Lockheed lawyers because you signed an NDA. Right. And the important distinction here is to separate private non-disclosure agreements from government non-disclosure agreements, and, and even private NDAs that deal with the government because they're contractors or the like. Now, for one thing, it's mostly the private sector that uses non-disclosure agreements. The extent to which the federal government uses mostly comes up in the context of security clearances. We, we are all required to sign non-disclosure agreements that apply only to classified information. There are some non-disclosure agreements that are used throughout the uh, federal system, not widely, but there are some agencies that that do use them every so often. But even for settlement agreements, like what you're talking about in the Me Too movement, even when I settle cases against the U.S. government, the policy for the uh, for quite some time in my law practice, at least, that I've seen, was that the Department of Justice actually refuses to put anything under seal or have any type of prohibitive uh, speech requirements in the non-disclosure agreements. They want it to be publicly available mm-hmm. to everyone. In the private sector, non-disclosure agreements, again, are more uh, prevalent. Uh, They do have some limitations. There are some things where if it's against public policy, it can be struck down by a court, but it is much, much broader. The issue here with the U.S. government is, one, I think anything that prohibits speech of a former federal employee or contractor as it relates to their government service is unconstitutional under the First Amendment. I think, unlike with security clearances, I think this is very clear in the number of cases, including quite a few that I've litigated, uh, but which stemmed out of cases from the 1970s and early 80s before I was practicing, of course, uh, 
forget the, the Marchetti case in the 70s, the McGeehee case in the D.C. Circuit in the early 80s that were all about pre-publication review of CIA, former CIA officials uh, who wrote books and had to submit it and what could the U.S. government do to prevent them from publication. Right. And the courts made it clear in both those cases I cited are different circuits, Fourth Circuit uh, and D.C. Circuit, made it very clear that the U.S. government has no legitimate interest in prohibiting an individual from exercising their First Amendment right as long as it wasn't classified information. Well, the Marchetti case is, is a complete landmark case where he came out guns a-blazing against the CIA, and that was basically what kind of sets forth the PRB today is that yeah. I don't care how critical you are as long as, you can, as, long as you're not giving anything away you're not supposed to. And that to. was at a time when no one did yeah. that. I mean, there were very few books written about the CIA. His book, The Cult of Intelligence, came out, I want to say, 1974, 75. Um, and you know, the books that had come out before that were books that were sanctioned by the agency, like Alan Dulles, the third director, writing a book on some issue. Uh, so, you know, books on, you can count on one hand that were critical of the CIA. So that was a big deal. Uh, I've litigated more pre-pub review cases than anybody, frankly, in history. I can say that easily because I can check to see what cases have been litigated. And there's no other cases besides mostly what I've done for the most part. And But they all work off of those two cases in particular. And so... There was actually, you can still find it online, there was an, an OMB instruction, Office of Management and Budget, that will give guidance to the rest of the federal agencies about particularly documents that they're going to have their people execute. And there was an OMB directive issued during the Obama administration. It was unclear to me when I looked at it if it's, if it's not in force any longer. I think it still is. And it goes to what you were talking about with, say, a cover-up of any waste, fraud, abuse, criminal activity, whistleblowing. And the guidance was any federal agency who uses a non-disclosure agreement, and that includes the ones that we sign for access to classified information, the SF-312, Standard Form 312, or any of the forms that govern SCI access, uh, sensitive compartmented information. They all are required to include provisions that say... This doesn't apply to lawful whistleblowing, and lawful whistleblowing meaning you can't leak classified information to the media, but you can go to inspector general, right. you can go to Congress, you can go to the general counsels. There's a lot of routes, which we've talked in other podcasts, about where someone can go, and the NDA cannot legally preclude the person from doing that. And I think that would include information that contractors knew. Uh, it, it, it's more difficult, of course. And what you were talking about, of course, deals with more proprietary information, non-compete clauses. You know, private entities can do that. The government never does that, although the Trump administration NDAs actually, at least the ones I've seen from the campaign, actually had non-compete clauses in, in them, which are unheard of. But that said, we got to push those apart because... The Trump campaign is a private entity. The Trump transition was a private right. entity. It's not until they start government service. So Amorosa, uh, who this issue became the, the focal point of, she apparently executed a 2016 campaign NDA. And that is the NDA that's going to cause her problems, not the NDA, which actually she refused to sign, that was in the White House that other staff have apparently signed. 
uh, that could prevent people. In fact, I, we've offered, my firm will represent any White House person who has signed an NDA that wants to challenge it. We'll do it for free because the First Amendment rights are, are so important. Uh, and I think most people don't realize that they have the right to say no because they're concerned they're going to lose the job. Right. And they don't realize they have the legal right to say, nope, that doesn't apply. These are private organizations, but the, the Trump campaign at a certain point when he was when he was the actual nominee got Secret Service protection, when he was president-elect, all of a sudden getting intelligence briefings, you know, even though that's part of the transition, you have an element of a kind of a public-private hybrid there where there are you know, the National Archive is going to have documents from the president-elect time of the transition from the Trump administration. That all of a sudden becomes less of a private organization and more of kind of a mixture of the it's two. It's more of this quasi, and again, we've never had this situation before. Right. So I, I don't know. I don't know how it would turn out. And I think that to the extent the National Archives usually gains access to transition paperwork, other than what was, of course— submitted to the government, which then an agency would have possession of, I think the campaigns generally do so willingly and they can do so in a way that they can call what they don't want right. to be in there. But again, we've never had this type of situation come up before. So, you know, there, there are academic discussions at the moment that I'm sure both sides can argue very ably. Sh shifting a little bit, but keeping on the same basic theme is, has there been any noticeable effect in the pre-publication process since the beginning of the Trump administration, in particular this battle between the administration and the intelligence community. You would, you would think that the PRB at CIA would be much more likely to overlook things that they would stop before if it makes them look good or, or anything like that. I mean, clearly there's a double standard, which we can get into, I know, between the high ups getting re reviewed and those others. But have you seen any discernible changes between getting things cleared through the PRB in December of 2016 versus January of 2017? I haven't seen anything yet. I, I've sued a number of agencies. I'm trying to think how many lawsuits I've been involved with since the Trump administration started for pre-pub. A handful, at least. Uh, a few I can think about. CIA, a few against the Defense Department. The thing is, and, and just like, again, I've been doing these cases since the Clinton administration. I never saw anything change from Clinton to Bush, from Bush to Obama, and I haven't seen yet from Obama to Trump. The distinction, though, I will say, and it's more of just we, we have to wait and see, the books, of course, that I am litigating about where the agencies have prohibited certain information because they claim it's classified are not about the Trump administration, right? right? It, it's it's about the Obama and Bush administrations predominantly because it's people who served you know during the last twenty years and are now in the private sector. So it's unclear, of course, what will happen, and I'm not going to predict because I have no idea as to whether if there is when there is a Trump administration official who comes out and writes a book based on information they learned that was classified and they are subject to a secrecy non-disclosure agreement for pre-pub purposes, uh, how it will play out. Uh, Amorosa, it, it, it's a little bit unclear. She, she would have had a clearance to work in the White House, typically at the top secret level. From my understanding, it had not gone through yet. And in any event, her job responsibilities uh, likely did not 
or never would have included access to classified information. And the pre-pub review requirement is imposed only on those who have SCI access. I always tell my clients who have had secret or top secret access, you should still submit the book for a pre-pub review because all the agreements prohibit the disclosure of classified information because it's a crime. And you'd much rather find out going into the process that there is something that is objectionable rather than on the other end when you've published it, the book's out, and now you're before a judge in a prosecution in an orange jumpsuit. So uh, Amorosa did not need to submit her book for pre-pub. And, of course, the other books that have come come out have all been reporters. So we, we haven't yet seen anyone critical of the president who comes from the inside now, I have seen in the past where certainly we made the allegation and there was evidence to support it that agencies were looking at the contents of the book or manuscript not just for classified purposes but also for political reasons as to how it made them or the administration right. at the time look. I remember back during the Clinton days, we had I had one particular book with the CIA DOD where we obtained documents through FOIA later on that made it clear that they were disseminating the manuscript to offices that were political in nature inside the agency uh, that had no substantive jurisdiction over the contents of the manuscript. Now, I never saw that they withheld the information right. as a result, but they were making them aware of it. Is that the worst you've seen or, or does it get overtaken by some of the double standards that you see through the PRP where, let's say, hypothetically, someone like Nada Bacos, who uh, has a much harder time getting a book through for PRB than a former director, or a former director just decides to say, screw it, I'm not even going through PRB. They can retroactively clear this. I'm going to publish my book, which is exactly what happened with Panetta, I believe, where he just decided... I'm going to publish this, and everyone else will have to deal with it. I thought Panetta had put his—he must have put his book through. Um, but uh, you know, Colby had a book that mistakenly was published in the French language version before it had been reviewed, and then it was reviewed back in the late uh, '70s or '80s, I suppose. I'm trying to think when it came out. Stansfield Turner uh, actually wrote like an entire chapter or introduction in one of his books. I want to say it's like Secrecy and Democracy or something like that from 1985, complaining about the PRB, (laughs) uh, which is the Publications Review Board at the CIA. I don't know if we identified it by name, uh, about how horrific it was. But of course, and and that sort of maybe does explain things because Stansfield Turner was not a popular director within the CIA. He, in fact, was hated by a lot of the rank and file who would have been involved with with the book. Um, So, like... You know, the cases I've seen now, I definitely, I'd say the worst I, I see, I see agencies trying to protect them, their own reputation. Right. I see a lot of inconsistencies at times. Um, I definitely see favoritism played uh, at times and, and a lot of games, gamesmanship. Uh, and again, I would say political with a small P not political, Democrat, Republican, independent, communist, what socialism, whatever. Uh, it's more internal to that agency or internal to other agencies. Uh, the way the process typically works is you would submit the book to whoever, whichever agency last held your clearance. And sometimes that creates a strange situation. 
So years ago when I represented Notre Trulock, who was the energy department's intelligence chief, he wrote a book since published about Wen Ho Lee uh, at Los Alamos and whether Wen Ho Lee had been a spy for the Chinese government and who he was prosecuted in the case was a nightmare for the U.S. government and very embarrassing. At the end of the day, he pled guilty, I think, to one felony out of 59 counts, and the judge even apologized to him, as I recall. But so Notre Trulock wrote this book, The Energy Department Controls the Nuclear Labs, like Los Alamos, of course. And uh, so he submitted, he was working for NSA at the time, um, or at least NSA as a contractor, I think, and NSA had his clearance. So he submitted the manuscript to NSA. NSA had like nothing to do with the Wen Ho Lee case. And then NSA, when they read the manuscript, shifted it around as they should have, gave a copy to the Energy Department, which clearly had a role, Mm -hmm. gave a copy to the FBI that clearly had a role, the CIA, probably the Defense Department, DIA, wherever else. And the agency that caused the most problem was the FBI. Why? Because the FBI had the most to lose, quite frankly. Uh, They were the ones that were on the hook as to how embarrassing it was to uh, how the investigation was conducted, how the interrogations were conducted, etc. So they had they created the biggest fight. Same thing with Nada Proudy, uh, who was another client of mine, who was a former FBI agent, then CIA case officer, was prosecuted for being a Hamas spy and wrote a book after all the charges were dismissed. She pled guilty to some minor charge. Uh, judge even apologized. Federal judge apologized to her as well. She submitted her book. The CIA, where most of this stuff time-wise happened, was totally in support of her. The FBI, which was on the hook for, frankly, accusing her of being a spy, was the problem in the review process. We didn't sue in that case. We handled it administratively, mm-hmm. and she was able to get it to a point where she was content to have it published. Let me, let me wrap this up by asking you about a, a case that also broke last week. I mean, it's something that people may remember from about a year and change ago. Um, a a leaker um, who some still want to argue was a whistleblower, but I, I think you'll probably, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you'll probably put her clearly on the side of the leakers, and that's Reality Winner. Uh, this is this young woman who uh, leaked, whistleblew, again, whatever you wanted to kind of call it, information about uh, the intelligence community's analysis of Russia's involvement in the 2016 election. Uh, she was just sentenced to a little over five years, I believe. Like 63 months. Yeah. In, in, with time served time. that she's already been in. In federal prison. Um, and that in the federal prison system, just so people understand, there, there is no time off for good behavior. Right. There's no parole, right? It's basically... Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, in many state local systems, it's something like for every three days you serve, you get one day credit if you behave. Not in the federal system. Right. You serve your sentence. So uh, those who are, who are who are defending her, uh, calling her a whistleblower, now rightly point out that she's still now the only person prosecuted for the Russian influence campaign and the Russian hacking in the 2016 I guess actually, election. technically they're wrong because there's that one guy from California who the special counsel got a guilty plea from oh. who, who unknowingly was connected to some Russian bots or something, as right. I recall. So right. I think technically all maybe right. that right. guy. But, so but yes, yes, but, you but know, generally, generally yes. speaking, she's the primary person that someone has been prosecuted who had connections to an issue 
involving Russian hacking or interference in the 2016 election. Right, and it was for releasing information showing that the hacking had actually taken place. Right. She released one uh, classified NSA document that she printed at work as a defense contractor in Georgia that discussed analysis of the intel community, but NSA in particular, um, what the government knew about Russian hacking into state election machines. And from what I recall publicly, and uh, you're correct, I do not think she's a whistleblower. I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post in June of 2017 saying just that, because uh, by law she's simply, she's not. Uh, but part of the reason she's not also is that there was nothing she revealed in this document that shows any waste, fraud, abuse, certainly not illegal conduct of the United States government. It was an analysis of what the Russians had been doing. And the, the problem with this type of a release by someone who, however well-meaning uh, she might be, certainly naive, that's for sure, uh, is that you, she, doesn't know the consequences, what might befall by revealing it. And frankly, it didn't reveal anything we weren't publicly discussing right. it'd be at one, the time. It would be one thing if the NSA and the IC was publicly coming out and saying there was no Russian interference, yes. there was no Russian hacking, and she released a document saying – To the well, contrary. That, to the contrary. We're covering it up. That's not right. the case. But she's basically confirming with a document what the IC has been yelling now for yeah. over two and, years. And they were looking at it internally, and the problem with what this document does – and, of course, we haven't seen publicly the damage assessment or anything like that. But, you know, if you read the document, which was published by The Intercept, and, and I actually don't think The Intercept significantly contributed to her capture uh, or identification, although their tradecraft was horrible and, and certainly helped the government. But, I mean, people don't realize how easy it is from an electronic trail. I mean, she printed a document. The NSA was able to say six people yeah. <laughs> printed that document, and then she was the only one who had email contact with the intercept. It was, you know, one plus one equals two. Uh, but that document reveals when the intelligence community knew certain things about what the Russians were doing. So if you reverse engineer things from the Russian standpoint or in any type of enemy uh, intelligence agency, you can start to at least assess how good they were in their infiltration and their tactics before they were caught. And that's a problem in, in giving that type of information out to the public. And so, you know, it didn't contribute to anything the U.S. government was doing. The U.S. government has been taking the intelligence agencies, at least. Let's separate it from the Trump White House. The, the executive branch has been taking this seriously inside the agencies in pursuing it. Maybe they haven't been doing enough. I'm, you know, That's something we can all debate in Congress and things like that. Are we ready for the 2018 midterms? Are we ready for the 2020 presidential election? That's a, that's a legitimate question and debate. But I don't think you can say that they weren't taking it seriously and revealing this document didn't do anything uh, that framed that conversation any better, it, it hurt the conversation. And, you know, I, I think from what I have seen publicly, uh, you know, her intent was actually 
to not even to necessarily inform the public. It was to persuade Glenn Greenwald, who's a vocal critic of actually, strangely enough, in this case, who doesn't believe that Russia was actually involved, that it's just this kind of deep state uh, type of conspiracy theory that she was trying to persuade him that actually, no, this is this is true. The Russians really did hack into our 2016 election. It didn't seem to work because here we are two years or a year plus later, I suppose, I think from when it happened. Uh, and he still doesn't believe Russia was involved. Starting so. to teeter a little bit, but not okay. nowhere near where we. But so, you know, it, it's a it's a real difficult. Now, I, I look, I feel I feel bad for it. 63 months in jail is I don't I would never want to spend 63 months in jail. I don't spend any time in jail. Um, but there has to be consequences. And one can argue, okay, maybe the sentence should be lighter. Um, you know, I, I'd like to think prison time is all about whether the person would, would learn uh, from their mistakes and never do it again, as well as send a message to others. You know, so maybe three or four years probably would have been sufficient to send a message. And, you know, President Trump or anyone coming later on can commute her sentence, just like. President Obama commuted Chelsea Manning's sentence. Chelsea Manning was sentenced to about 35 years in prison, ended up serving about seven or so. Uh, I would I, I would not have a problem. Let's see how she does in prison and, and whether she comes around to saying that what she did was wrong. And, and I would hope speak out to say, yeah, you know, this isn't something people should do. I'd like to see something like that. And I wouldn't have a problem with commutation of that sentence after some uh, jail time and halfway house, whatever. Uh, but I would, I would be opposed to a pardon because we, we can't have individuals deciding what the national security interests of the United States are, other than the individuals who are in the position of power, whoever that might be, uh, and however off they might be to decide that. But that's how the system works. And when you have a 25-year-old, you know, if you look at a lot of the more recent leakers, they've all been millennials. We can go into a psychological assessment of millennials Kids these days. about that. Uh, but that that's a real significant issue. And because everything in the intel world, especially at this level, are very compartmentalized, uh, you know, I see I have clients look at the highest levels who are whistleblowers, legitimate whistleblowers, doing things the right way, who have had incredible access to classified information. And I can see being on the inside that they don't always have the full picture right. of the puzzle and that they make good faith assessments and raise good faith concerns as to what they see. But once we later find out other information, their concerns were unfounded. And if they had revealed it at the time, it could have had dire consequences. Well, Mark Zaid now holds the record for most spy casts until we bring back Mark Stout. But in the meantime, check out Mark's Twitter feed where he argues with people from Australia, Australia and New Zealand. And they're probably all Russian bots, but yes. that's fine. Uh, Mark, thank you again for taking the time to talk to us. I'm sure in the next couple of months, there's going to be plenty of more legal things to have conversations about. So we'll certainly have you back. But for now, we appreciate you taking the time. It is my pleasure, Vince. Anytime. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. 
And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now. <laughs> 